often those of us who don't live with food insecurity, who have the luxury of, you know, looking up recipes and finding ingredients, you know, we would have a craving for something uh, that we really wanted to eat and look up a recipe and go and get the ingredients, you know, stop for this, pick up that versus looking at what we have in our in our pantries and our fridges and, and figuring out what to do with it. Today on Dirty Linen, we are heading across the seas to Canada. We are talking to food writer Julie Van Rosendahl. She is a prolific cookbook author. She appears on uh, radio in Canada. She does beautiful recipes and she's also pretty outspoken on Twitter, which is where I first encountered you, Julie. Welcome to Dirty Linen. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's it's really great to have you on the show. Um, I feel like Australia and Canada are, are, you know, similar in lots of ways. We're so different in other ways, but um, it's, uh, yeah, I feel a real kinship and I'm really happy to um, come over to Calgary and hang out with you today. Yeah, it's, it's too bad we can't be actually eating at a table together, but uh, that's okay. We'll pretend. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Well, where I am in Melbourne at the moment, we're, we're in lockdown for the seventh time or sixth time, whatever it is, lost count. Um, so yeah, no one's eating out yet, but it's not too far. Um, it's not too far in the, in the future. We're getting there. Um, but yeah, tell me about life for you in Calgary at the moment. What are the sort of big things going on there? Oh, geez. Well, the same things that are, <laughs> that are going on there. Uh, Alberta, Calgary is in Alberta, province of Alberta, and it's it's uh, not doing very well in in terms of COVID rates these days. Um, the you know the the government decided to open up uh, everything over the summer, and uh, now we seem to be paying for it with uh, with some really high um, COVID rates. So <laughs> restrictions are starting to tighten again a little bit. We're not quite on lockdown again, but. Uh, but there are a lot of restrictions and, and mandatory vaccinations if you want to, say, eat in a restaurant or, um, you know, go see a movie and, uh, and a lot of pushback about that. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's getting to be a long uh, year and a half of sort of navigating the pandemic and uh, to eating a lot of food at home and, uh, you know, trying to figure out how to see people that that I want to see and do it in a safe way. Yeah, I mean, it is pretty, it's a long grind, that's for sure. I mean, I was looking at the vaccination rates in Canada and it's over 70% for the 12 plus age group, which, you know, we're told is a reasonably safe um, count uh, at which to open. Is the rate in Alberta lower than that or is it you know what do you think it is that means that vaccinations not too bad but cases and hospitalizations are still really high yeah well and i i i don't know exactly what number it is what percentage is vaccinated i want to say it's above 70 percent in alberta but i'm not i don't have the number in front of me um but uh, but the icus are completely overloaded we've had to have uh, the Red Cross come in. Um, we've had some some medical teams come from Newfoundland to help out and open up some new ICU beds. Uh, so the hospitals are completely just overloaded with with COVID patients. They're canceling surgeries, um, and uh, and the rates, you know, just keep <laughs> going up uh, because of that sort of small percentage of the population that. Uh, that's unvaccinated. So, um, and the rates are going up among the under 12 set as well. 
Um, there was a 14 year old who passed away over the weekend in Alberta. And, uh, and so it's, it's very worrying for, for parents of kids who are under 12 and, you know, going to school, schools are, are open. Um, but the, the board of education, the large board of education in Calgary has mandated that, um, all staff have to be double vaccinated as of, I believe the end of this month. And so, um, that's going to cause some problems as well because they're already <laughs> running out of uh, substitutes, you know, staff, there's staff issues. So that's what led to the schools closing in the spring. And um, so it's likely that it will happen again. Did I even answer your question? <laughs> yeah, I think you did. I think the short answer is it's, it's, it's a lot and it's kind of, it's, I mean, it's devastating to hear of people dying of COVID and to hear of a 14 year old. I mean, that's just, gut-wrenching um the rules around being vaccinated to enter workplaces such as restaurants i mean are they are they sort of being retrofitted or was that the rule from the beginning well that was something that a lot of people pushed for for a long time was the uh, vaccine passport is what it's sort of being referred to just proof of vaccination essentially uh and it took the alberta government quite a while to implement it and they did Oh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, maybe. And, uh, and so, you know, that has incentivized some people who hadn't been vaccinated to get vaccinated, but, um, you know, I don't think en enough. Um, and, uh, so yeah, that's something that, uh, that a lot of people think sort of has helped, but it's, a bit late it's sort of come into play a little bit late and then there are confusing rules you know there are still um events are still allowed and uh and so you know gatherings are restricted among the vaccinated and the unvaccinated uh there are restrictions on you know dining in restaurants uh going into retail stores things like that um but uh, you know th then there are sort of rules that allow for larger um special events you know that aren't quite as regulated so it's really frustrating and it's really uh it's really frustrating for a lot of people and small business owners you know especially the hospitality industry uh people who you know are vaccinated and want to get together for it was canadian thanksgiving last weekend this past weekend and uh and so you know the people who were vaccinated were only allowed to gather I think with one other cohort group, but if you're outside, you could gather with up to 20 people. <laughs> I mean, there are all these rules that kind of keep changing and everyone's kind of trying to, to navigate. But then, you know, you have these, this sort of small percentage of the population that is so actively protesting the, the restrictions and the vaccine passport. And, and uh, even though that it's, you know, predominantly the unvaccinated who are in the ICUs, uh, and and the, the death toll every day is, you know, between 10 and one day it was 34 last week, I believe was the highest day. And uh, and so it's just, yeah, it's just really frustrating to see. And especially with all these um, surgery cancellations, you know, the Children's Hospital had a large percentage of their their uh, surgeries cancelled, um, all elective surgeries cancelled. You know, we were hearing stories about people with brain tumors and cancer diagnoses that are having their uh, their surgeries cancelled, or or organ transplants. You know, um, just having their their surgeries cancelled indefinitely. So that's going to cause more. You know, not just anxiety, but 
certainly more, you know, illnesses and death as people don't get the, the treatment that they require. Yeah, I think, it's, yeah, it's so complex and it's, yeah, there's so many um, implications of, uh, yeah, just letting this thing run riot. I guess that's what we're hoping we're going to avoid in Australia as we reopen. Um, but, yeah, certainly certainly looking at places like like Canada was a bit of a cautionary tale with um, we really do have to protect our, our health system so carefully because, yeah, it's, I mean, any of us could get hit by a bus tomorrow. Well, and that's the thing, right? We sort of take for granted we have this fantastic healthcare system in in Canada and, and we take it for granted that it's going to be available to us when we need it. And now th- that's the frustrating part is, you know, they're starting to triage patients and, and uh, you know, my understanding is that it's, you know, it's going by age. And if my parents had a, an accident or a heart attack, they might not be able to get the treatment because they're older, um, which is just something we've never had to to deal with before. Right. So I think people just don't quite understand that. Mm. I, was, I saw one of your posts recently about um, not putting knives in the sink. And it's just like that you. Yes. All uh, these things. T- tell me about that. <laughs> you know. And uh, yeah, you know, a friend said that, you know, her, her husband went uh, mountain biking a couple of weekends ago and, and broke his neck and he was fine, but, you know, was at the hospital and I was like, you guys, we can't do these things. Like all these small things that we kind of, you know, uh, dangerous activities, day-to-day activities, we just, you know, we take for granted that that help will be available because it always has been and it just might not be. Um, and the hospitals are so overloaded, you know, that all the, the healthcare workers are so exhausted and, uh, and overworked. So it's, you know, I think it's something that, um, we all have to start considering is not, not putting knives in the sink and not cutting frozen bagels and all these things that might, uh, wind up, you know, have us wind up in, and emerge. Yeah, don't have an avocado in the palm of your hand and just like slash at it with a slash at the stone with a knife. Put the guard on the mandolin. Um, yeah, uh, put a uh, yeah, put a rag around the hot pot handle. Um, yeah, we're not allowed to hurt ourselves. Um, no cereal for the foreseeable future. Yeah, it's so crazy, isn't it? I mean. I mean, I know you've, you've, you know, you've written all these cookbooks. You're, uh, you're, you're obviously, you're like me, you're obsessed with food. It's all you think about, but it's so, it's so crazy that, um, you know, we spend the first 10 minutes of our conversation talking about a pandemic and about hospitals and, you know, about these, um, broader societal issues. It's been quite a, it's been, it's really changed it up, hasn't it? It really, it has changed everyone's perspective, everyone's priorities. Like there's just been a huge shift in so many aspects of our lives, you know, we've really started to pay more attention to our communities and, and realize how we can support each other in our communities. And I think sometimes it's, you know, these, these huge situations and huge problems that seem like insurmountable and, you know, there's nothing I can do to, to help, you know, the health, our healthcare system or make sure people are fed or, but I think the key is having all of us, pay closer attention to the people around us and realize that there's a lot that we can do that makes a big, big difference. 
you know, in the lives of people in our immediate communities. And if we all do that, you know, it's not as, as big a, a problem and, and we can, we can take care of each other. We really just need to do that. What kinds of things have you seen around you or have you indeed been doing yourself to, to do that work for the community? Oh, well, gee, I, I mean, early on in the pandemic, as soon as the, they, they declared a pandemic and closed the schools last March, my uh, my sister is a, a principal and I just know how, I know I have a teenager, I know how many kids are, you know, rely on their the school breakfast and lunch programs. We don't have a national lunch program, but there are sort of emergency lunch programs and breakfast programs at schools that uh, that a lot of kids rely on. So uh, so with the schools closed, I knew a lot of kids would be cut off from a, a source of food, you know, and a lot of kids who are left to their own devices. There are a lot of resources available for adults, but not a lot for kids. And, you know, a lot of the agencies kind of pivoted to, to handing out gift cards or mailing out gift cards, which is not something that's accessible to kids, you know, <laughs> a six-year-old can't go grocery shopping. And, uh, and so, you know, right off the bat, there was just this, this sort of flurry of surplus food with all the restaurants closing and the, you know, the culinary school had 10,000 pounds worth of, you know, produce and meat and cheese and things they had to get rid of. And, uh, you know, all the agencies had their, their storage was full, their freezers, freezers and fridges were full. So there was all this food sort of moving around. And I knew some teachers at, at a really high, high needs, uh, school who, you know, the Monday morning after schools closed, they were back at school handing out the food that they had left in the in the school and so I started directing some of the food that was coming my way because I know a lot of chefs you know I, I, I know a lot of people in the food community a lot of producers and uh, you know and and the food you know hunger related agencies and so um, so this it sort of quickly we started moving this food around and I called a, a friend who has a uh, a very high-end restaurant one of the it was on the top 100 list uh, not long ago. Um, just an amazing old, you know, century house that that has been transformed into a restaurant. And I said, can we start putting stuff in your in your walk-in? And he said, sure. So anyway, we started uh, preparing all these ingredients, a bunch of chefs from, from Sate, which is, a, you know, has an a amazing culinary arts program. Uh, you know, and chefs who were not working, we opened up the kitchen at Rouge, it was a Rouge rest restaurant, and started turning all the surplus food into meals and and setting up these sort of safe distribution points uh, around the city. So we ended up having 13 distribution points and and distributing hundreds of meals a day for until the fall, until the schools opened again. So that was sort of a big thing that we did last year but more recently uh you know everyone has been really um it's just frustrated by the, just wanting to do something for our healthcare workers you know just and i think that that frustration that sort of feeling of helplessness is is in its own self is something that you know that's um that's hard on people and uh and so watching you know our healthcare system sort of be weighed down and and start to sort of collapse and and knowing that the you know the the nurses and the doctors and the administrators and the cleaners all these people are just pushed to their limit and you know everyone wants to send food and uh, and you can't do that 
you can't just, you know, show up with a casserole or cookies, which is sort of a, a universal way of showing support, right? Feeding each other is something we can all do. We all have to eat. It's, it's very personal and it's very emotional. And, and um, it's just that gesture of feeding somebody. And, uh, and so, you know, I had a, a, I have a friend who has a, a catering business who actually took over the lunch operation last summer when it got big and, and, you know, the catering companies are losing all their business because events are, are closed. Right. So it's not just the restaurants, it's, it's the caterers. And, and she had, you know, a lot of storage, she had the, the delivery trucks. And so, so I've been working with her uh, on the lunches last year. And so she was messaging me saying, what, you know, what can we do about the healthcare workers? And at the same time, it, the staff from ICUs around Calgary were messaging me, you know, with similar thoughts. And so, um, so I connected one, you know, woman from an ICU nurse with, with Javal who owns Devour Catering and, and uh, they had sort of a small group of people who, who collected some money and, and had some meals delivered to this one unit. Anyway, so it, she, put a, a post together on her website with an order form, $15. You can buy a, a meal and treats and, you know, this whole sort of care package for an ICU worker. And then once, uh, once we get up to 50, we'll send, uh, a, you know, a, a load over to one of the ICUs and, and coordinate with Alberta health services and make sure that we do it in a safe way. And cause there are 50, 50 staff on any given shift at an ICU. And uh, anyway, so within I don't know, three days, they, she had to stop it because 6,500 people, there 6,500 meals had been purchased. People just were so, they just want to do something, you know, and she was getting calls from, you know, the, the, the people who, you know, lived alone and were on a fixed income and said, can I, can I purchase one meal? You know, and, and people who would call and buy a hundred meals or 50 meals. And it's like, it's just this range of, of um it's just amazing so uh so i got to go and help her deliver uh thanksgiving dinners over the weekend um she did uh you know special turkey dinners for everyone who was working at all the hospitals and and it's just you know just i think uh have people having that ability to to do something you you know and even small gestures like you know having a meal delivered and, and a card we had they had uh 10 uh, teenagers made handmade thank you cards for every single delivery. And, um, and it just makes a huge difference, you know? Yeah. Those, those kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, it makes a difference to the people who are doing it and, you know, um, being generous and I'm sure it makes a massive difference to the people who are receiving it, but you're right. People really want to feel like, you know, what can I do? People ache to do something, don't they? Um, Julie, I know that Canadian Thanksgiving is a few weeks ahead of the U.S. version. Tell me about Thanksgiving in Canada. Oh, boy. Well, yeah, it's quite – it's the first the first weekend of October and uh, – first weekend or second weekend? Jeez, what, it's already mid-October. How is this – how is it mid-October already? I don't know how that happened. <laughs> I don't know either. And then, yeah, the U.S. Thanksgiving is uh, – is closer to Christmas. It's way farther ahead. Um, and of course, you know, very tied to colonization and in Canada, it was not declared a holiday until 1957. And, uh, and it was 
declared a holiday that celebrates the harvest and, you know, things that you're thankful for and it gives, you know, people an opportunity to gather. And so the focus is very much on gathering and, uh, and giving thanks for, you know, all we have and, and making use of the harvest and, you know, early October, it's perfect time for, uh, you know, all kinds of things that are in season. And so that's sort of how I've always seen it. And a lot of people in Canada see it that way. Um, but the two are, you know, with the same name, Thanksgiving, <laughs> they're very, uh, it's with people connect them to each other, you know, and, and a lot of people in this, in the state say, what, what is Canadian Thanksgiving? Like, what is that? Because, you know, in the U S it's all about the, the Mayflower, right. And the, you know, and so we didn't have that. So what's, why is there a Canadian Thanksgiving? Um, so it is more about harvest and gathering and giving thanks and that kind of thing. Okay. And so, I mean, what, what's, um, what's good right now in Canada? Like, what are you harvesting? What's, what's good on, what's good on the table? What's good to cook with at the moment? Oh, well, it depends where you live. Um, (laughs) I'm in the prairie, so. It's a massive country. Hey, (laughs) it is massive. Yeah. And, you know, the seasons, uh, you know, obviously the terroir is different across the country and the, um, seasons are a little bit different. It's, it's been snowing here for the last two days. I mean, not, really staying on the ground, but there's, there's been snow already. Um, and so I see, you know, pictures on Instagram from my friends in BC and even out in Toronto and things are still blooming. And, uh, and so in Alberta, there's a lot of root vegetables, there's a lot of peppers and, uh, and a lot of stone fruits that come from BC next door. A lot of plums, apples, of course, apples and pears, um, are in season. I just went and dug out the last of my carrots and beets because the ground froze last night <laughs> and uh, I'm going to need to get my potatoes out too. But uh, yeah, yeah. All kinds of, uh, all kinds of produce in season right now. Through this massive disruption of the pandemic, you know, as a writer of recipes and someone who's, you know, thinking about how people want to eat, what have you noticed in terms of how people want to eat and want to cook? I mean, obviously home cooking's become a bigger part of many people's lives, but do you think that the way people have, um, yeah, changed their cooking and eating lives is, is, has brought actual change or do you think it's just been for this period? Oh, no, I think it's, I think it's going to, change the way people approach you know meal times for a long time and you're right people have cooked more this past year and a half than ever before like the dishes the amount of dishes that you know it just never stops because we sort of take for granted that we might stop for coffee or you know grab lunch out and and the majority of Canadians ate lunch away from home before the pandemic and now people are you know, at home for lunch, they are uh, maybe, you know, if they're working from home, they're, you know, putting in a, a stew at lunchtime, like they're home to sort of uh, have the oven on and, and prepare their dinner. Um, before the pandemic, a third of Canadians followed some sort of dietary regime, you know, whether it was um, veganism, vegetarian, paleo, you know, Whole30, whatever, like whether it was a program or just sort of a, a way of, of eating. And I'd be really curious what the statistics are now, you know, because I think it really has shaken up people's view of, of food and, uh, uh, and, and people haven't had the luxury. I mean, 
financially or time-wise or, you know, get, going to the grocery store is not the same experience that it, that it was. Uh, so my guess is that, that number has dropped significantly. Um, and, and people have really learned to use what they have. You know, it, it used to be we would, and it, to some degree it still is, but, you know, we, we would often, those of us who, who don't live with food insecurity, who have the luxury of, you know, looking up recipes and finding ingredients, you know, we would, we would come across something on Instagram or Pinterest or, you know, have a craving for something uh, that we really wanted to eat and look up a recipe and go and get the ingredients and, you know, stop for this, pick up that versus looking at what we have in our, in our pantries and our fridges and, and figuring out what to do with it. And I think that's a really specific skill that, uh, you know, a lot of people don't have and, and have had the opportunity to, you know, to, to figure out what to do with what they have, uh, especially early in the pandemic when we weren't going to grocery stores as, as freely, we've sort of become more accustomed to navigating, you know, wearing our mask and keeping a distance. But early on, you know, people were going to the depths of their deep freezes and eating like <laughs> their fruitcake from last Christmas, just, you know, eating everything they have. And, and I spent so much time last year answering questions about, well, sourdough and, you know, how to make your own bread and we're, people were running out of yeast and, 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 you know, we saw such a surge in, in baking, partly because it's comforting and this, even just the smell of baking, you know, I've, I've always, if I'm a home working and I, I've worked from home for a, a long time. So, uh, so I'm kind of used to it, but I would plan when my son was coming home from school and if I had something to make or bake, I would put it in the oven then so that he walked into a, you know, the smell of something baking and things like that make a huge difference to our, our psyches, you know? And so we're baking for each other. We're baking together. We're baking with our kids because the kids were off school. And what do you do with kids who can't play with their friends? And, you know, we were using it as a teaching tool. And, uh, and so I think a lot of people learn to make bread, they learn to bake, they learn to be more self-sufficient, you know, versus running to the grocery store. Maybe they got into the habit of making, uh, you know, a batch of buns for their burgers or whatever. I started taking my son to the, the fridge and saying, okay, like, let's look at what's in here and try and think of what to do with it, just to sort of get him into that habit. And, uh, and I think people are figuring out how to use, how to use substitutions, you know, uh, rather than following a recipe exactly and running out for cilantro or picking up, you know, this or that that they need for for their specific dish, figuring out how they can leave it out or substitute something else. And, uh, and yeah, I think there's been a, a huge, uh, it's been a big, um, it's been a big experience in terms of learning how to cook. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm nodding furiously at everything you're saying. Is it? I think definitely that that uh, I guess frugality or resourcefulness about you know looking in the fridge and seeing what's there or or letting meals tumble from one to the next. You know whether it's you know cooking up some leftovers uh, from dinner for lunch or even you know scrambling them up with, with some eggs for breakfast. I think because people have had to relate so much more to what food 
is in their house. It's it's not like, you know, you, you make something for dinner, then the next two nights you eat out and then you look at it and it looks like just scungy old leftovers. You don't want to deal with them. But when you look at them, when you look at the food in your fridge every day or multiple times a day, or for me, like maybe 4,000 times a day, um, you <laughs> then you really do, um, you do need to relate to it more. And I think people have also... Uh, you know, even to do with things like, you know, we've had empty supermarket shelves early in the pandemic, which is something most people have never experienced before. I mean, you do start to think about food waste and about putting a value on food. And it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's, it is a real shift, which there's so many good things about that attention. And I, I hope that it does, um, does, ma- it is maintained. But do, do you, do you have a sense of what that means for eating out, you know, for the kinds of experiences that people want in restaurants or for the ways that, that chefs want to cook for people? Well, yeah. And I mean, chefs have really had to figure out how to, how to work as takeout operations, which has been so hard. I mean, the restaurant industry is the, the profit margin sort of averages two to 4% in, in the restaurant industry. So there's just not a lot of, of room there. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think when people start to, I mean, they can eat out here again uh, with restrictions and with, you know, proof of vaccination and the masking and, and uh, I believe you're only allowed to eat with one other cohort group. Anyway, people are starting to eat out again, but they're really focusing on, you know, where to go and, and paying attention to supporting, you know, small independent restaurants and and uh and treating it like you know in the in the old old days when it was a special occasion to go to a restaurant and you didn't do it very often i mean it's become so such a part of our day-to-day lives you know and you know we might not go to a you know a fancy restaurant and spend a lot of money we might go to a food truck or like a you know go for tacos or go, you know, sort of for a casual lunch or for coffee. It's, it's more a part of our, our sort of culture than it, than it was 30 years ago, you know? So I think it's sort of gone back to that, okay, we're going to go out for dinner. It's going to be a special occasion. It's, you know, we're going to plan it. We're going to consider where, where to go because we haven't been out for a year. And, uh, and it's sort of going to go back to that that sort of um, really a special occasion event rather than a a day-to-day, you know, where should we eat tonight and and pop in kind of thing. Yeah, which I think is is great in so many ways, especially, you know, with those slim profit margins you talk about. I think if restaurants are able to, well, if customers are able to meet restaurants halfway and maybe increasing those profit margins a little bit by um, spending a little bit more, then I think that's a good thing. But then I suppose that the, on the flip side, you, you don't want those more modest uh, establishments to fall by the wayside because people just aren't eating like that anymore. I guess you just sort of hope that there's, there's going to be a place for all kinds of food businesses, you know, all positions in the market. Uh, but I think there's there's definitely something to be said for the restaurant experience becoming special again. Yes. And I, I mean, in general, when there are times of, you know, when, when there's a recession, historically, those sort of mid-range restaurants and the chain restaurants tend to be the ones that do better because people see them as not as much of a risk. You know, they they might not go to a fine dining restaurant or try a new place, but they'll go to sort of those, you know, those sort of 
comfortable, not too pricey um, restaurants they, where they, they know what they're going to get. And uh, I, I think that one of the things that we need to sort of think about around, around the world, because the hospitality industries around the world are being, you know, just devastated by by the pandemic. And, uh, you know, in Canada, 25% of our young people have jobs in, in hospitality, right? So when you look at the hospitality industry, how many people they employ, you know, not just the restaurants themselves, but, you know, food service, the, 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 uh, the people who do the linens, the, the, you know, the farmers and the producers. And it's such a big part of our economy that, you know, keeping them going really keeps our economy going, keeps people fed. It addresses food insecurity as well to, to keep these people, you know, employed as much as we can. And I think that, um, we need to be creative about how we direct our pandemic relief funds. You know, there's so much money going towards uh, agencies that deal with hunger that have limited capacities, right? That can't necessarily do more to feed people than, than they already are. A lot of agencies have closed their kitchens, are working under reduced um with reduced numbers of volunteers because they can't have the corporate volunteer groups that that used to come in and uh and I think figuring out creative ways to to get these kitchens feeding people and directing those relief funds I mean in Canada just hundreds of millions of dollars are are sort of going towards helping feed people but I'm not convinced that a lot that a lot of that money is actually translating to to more people being fed. Um, but so, so for example, all these, uh, you know, underused restaurant kitchens and catering kitchens. Um, I, the one thing that I have been taught, had been talking to the Calgary food bank about for years is having these kitchens utilize some of their surplus ingredients, you know, at any given time they have, you know, tons of extra lentils or extra potatoes during the pandemic. There was this huge surplus of potatoes because all the restaurants were closed and so many of those potatoes went for French fries and restaurants, right? And so we had just a surplus of potatoes across Canada and in Calgary, the food bank had, you know, more potatoes than they could distribute. It was taking up their storage space. They don't have kitchens there, so they couldn't do anything with them. And so we started this uh, this pilot project where I gathered up a few uh, caterers that I that I know um, who you know all events had been canceled so they really hadn't they were just trying to cobble together you know frozen meal kits and things like that but they had all these th this capacity to produce a lot of food and to deliver it and to store it and so they started taking uh, surplus potatoes surplus. Uh, pasta, lentils, stock, whatever they, the food bank had, and processing it, processing it into usable meals that they then gave back to the food bank to distribute. And, and those meals are more useful for people who might not have the time, the culinary skills, the, the kitchen tools, the supplemental ingredients to take a bag of potatoes and some pasta and some beans or some, you know, the, these raw ingredients and turn them into meals. And, uh, and so that, you know, and that helps the food bank, it helps them feed more people, it helps keep these businesses 
uh, helps them keep their lights on, pay their staff. Like it's just all good. And, uh, and so I actually have a meeting with the CEO of the food bank on Friday to talk about (laughs) doing more because, and, and this kind of, you know, pairing up of small businesses with the agencies that have, uh, the funding, um, I think is, is key. And it's something that we kind of have to think creatively about and how to, how to tap into these underused kitchens. And, and, you know, that's what they do is feed people. They have the food handling permits, they have the, the safe kitchen spaces and, uh, what they don't have is the the money. (laughs) Yeah, it's such a it's such a great example of the kind of creativity that I think we've seen in so many arenas through the pandemic where, you know, people such as yourself identify a need, identify a solution and you just you just need those those magical links. Um yeah, someone that can sort of see the big picture and I I think it's um uh, yeah, in so many ways there's been opportunities for people to join the dots in the way society works and, of course, doesn't work and things that could perhaps be done better. Um, so, yeah, well, congratulations. It sounds so worthwhile and, um, yeah, just does good at every level. Um, Julie, I just, as a prolific cookbook author, I would love to just have a little chat to you about something that I've been reading a lot about over the past couple of days. And I don't know if you have, but it's, um, a, a cookbook, um, called Makan was, um, withdrawn from sale in the UK because uh, it had been discovered or alleged that the author had plagiarised some elements from another author whose book had been published, I think, in 2012. Do you Have you been following this? No, I haven't. Okay. Oh, well, you'll have to catch up on it. But I suppose, you know, what I'd love to talk to you about is this whole idea of originality in recipes and, and sort of where it lies, you know, originality and attribution. And I think, you know, it's it's often, I mean, this is the conversation around this one is, is a lot around appropriation um, in, a, in a particular cultural space, which is non-year food and, um, you know, food from, food from uh, East Asia and Southeast Asia. And so there's, a, there's, there's that whole side of it, which is, which is, you know, quite particular. It's obviously so important that, you know, people of colour are given platforms and elevated and there's also a lot of cultural appropriation that goes on with white authors. But I just wondered, you know, from your experience as, you know, a a recipe author, how do you think about originality and authenticity? I know it's a big question to throw at you (laughs) without notice, but I mean, what do you, what do you think about it? You know, like you're doing, I don't know, a a chicken soup or a lasagna or a sourdough or something, you know, how do you think about, about who it belongs to? Oh, and that's such a, you're right. That's such a big conversation to have because I mean, all food, comes from somewhere and is influenced by, you know, the, the people and the immigration patterns of an area and the terroir and the, you know, the seasons and our cultural traditions. And, and so that the concept of authenticity when it comes to food, I mean, that, I know it's not what you asked me, you asked me about cookbook authoring, but, um, you know, some people are very hung up on you know, what makes an authentic taco or an authentic, you know, and uh, does it matter, you know, in terms of, you know, if you're, if you're going out for the experience of, of eating it and it's delicious and it came from a person who, um, 
you know, took a variety of experiences and, uh, yeah, turned them into something delicious. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so in terms of writing, yeah, writing cookbooks, this is a good question because, you know, a lot of people say, uh, you know, oh, I, I saw someone, someone was just saying to me recently, oh, this, you know, the store, I saw them making your wild rice salad. And I was like, it's not my rice, wild rice salad. Well, but it had, you know, the same kind of fruits and the same kind of, and this is the, the tricky thing is there's, there's so many similarities in, in recipes and, you know, who, who invented the lemon bar, you know, we know who invented the chocolate chip cookie, but does everyone credit the inventor of the chocolate chip cookie when they do a chocolate chip cookie recipe? People always, you know, often say, oh, my chocolate chip cookie recipe. And it, it, when all chocolate chip cookie recipes have the same essential ingredients, you know, they all have butter and brown sugar and white sugar and egg and vanilla and flour and baking soda and salt and chocolate, right? And it's the ratios and sometimes the technique, you know, that that gives them a different texture. And, uh, and so really, if you write a chocolate chip recipe, guaranteed there's another chocolate chip cookie recipe that is exactly the same out there somewhere. And I live in fear that I'm going to, you know, come up with something that someone else has done and and uh and and it actually happened a while ago i was years ago i was trying to come up with something for my my column i'm on cbc radio in calgary and i was trying to come up with something for easter and i didn't i didn't make hot cross buns early enough and then i thought oh i'll make i'll make uh hot cross scone or hot cross Irish soda breads. I was thinking of scones and I thought, oh, little Irish soda breads, you know, because they have the the sort of cross on top. And so I made them and I thought, oh, you know, I was patting myself on the back for being so smart. And and then like a week later, I saw, you know, someone posted them on Instagram or somewhere. And, uh, and I was like, oh. And, and so I looked and it was it was, it was someone who had done it before me and I was so horrified that I was like oh no like I everyone's gonna think that I took her idea you know what I mean and so I mean so when it comes to actual recipes you can't own a recipe you can you can plagiarize a recipe um but you cannot own I mean can you imagine if if you could own a recipe every big food would own every combination of ingredients out there. And, uh, and so, yeah, so there, are, and I've had recipes that I worked really hard on show up in, in other cookbooks, but I, and I, I think food is for sharing, you know, I, I, uh, I don't get too bent out of shape about it, but, um, but yeah, it's tricky because, you know, like you said, you do a recipe for like, roasted chicken or a pumpkin loaf or like all these things that are very common and all the recipes out there are very similar and uh yeah yeah it's a it's, tricky one it's like I think I think the main problem with this book wasn't the recipes as such it was the stories around them and it was you know that to you know the original author had talked about you know the way that her mother or her auntie's you know, made something and the way the kitchen was organized and all these quite specific details. And then they were kind of, you know, barely changed in the more recent book. So I think it's, it's like taking, taking a, me a method or, you know, like coming up independently with a method that happens to be the same, whatever it is, I suppose that's quite different from borrowing somebody's own life story. Um, 
but I mean, I, I totally can imagine that feeling of the, <laughs> the soda bread, um, the hot cross soda bread. So it's like, I suppose it's like, you know, often you hear about it in music as well, where, you know, it's like, wasn't this, this part of the, the melody lifted from somewhere else. And you just sort of think a lot of stuff is just, you know, out there in the ether and, um, inspiration can strike in, you know, who, who knows how, you know, uh, sometimes it's, it just lands on you. Uh, but it's, um, I don't know. It's such a, I think it's such a big conversation. I think it's great that in the food, food media these days, you know, there is more space to have conversations around, um, around cultural appropriation and the, I guess the, the joy of authenticity, but also the burden of it and, you know, how important is it and who holds the key and, you know, all that stuff. Um, it's, uh, it's a really interesting space. And I mean, I think, you know, again, I think the pandemic has, you know, obviously it's been, uh, you know, anyway, there's a lot of big topics going on, but I'm just thinking, you know, of course we've had Black Lives Matter in amongst everything and there's been some food publishing scandals, I don't know, quote unquote scandals in, in the US media um, and elsewhere. And so there should be, um, but it just feels like it's definitely a, a great time of reckoning in so many ways. I agree. I agree. And we need, um, yeah, we, we definitely need to, have more voices and more perspectives and, you know, stories. Um, what is your cookbook that's coming out later in the year? Oh, it's a cookie cookbook. Oh, great. It's yeah. And, you know, I sort of, I went back to self-publishing um, and uh, just wanted to do a, a series of small format, single subject books that I was working on a different book that it just wasn't coming together very well and it was um it it just I kept running up against these obstacles and recipes weren't working and it was all just very bizarre and I I actually one day said okay I'm gonna look at my horoscope and whatever my horoscope says to do I'm gonna do that and I looked which is kind of unlike me but I've been doing some strange things during the pandemic and a couple times I noticed a horoscope in my feed that was really accurate. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go and look. And the horoscope said, if you're not sure that a project is going to work, don't do it and set it aside for later. And I was like, oh, that's really specific. So I, I switched and, but I, I still wanted to do a book and I thought, you know, one thing that I, I can pull together fairly quickly is a cookie book because I have all these cookie recipes that I have made for years. I had a cookie bakery back in the 90s that I don't think a lot of people even know. And uh, my first book was a cookie book and it came out in 1999. So it's, you know, kind of like a 21 <laughs> year anniversary of my cookie book. So I, I uh, pulled together this cookie cookbook for the holidays and it just, I actually just got the the first page proofs today. Maybe that's why my brain is not working. And uh, yeah, trying to, well, and I really strongly dislike this part of it because every time I see my work, I want to change it. And so when the proofs come back from the printer, I just want to instantly change everything, which of course it's a little bit too late for. Um, but, you know, I just need to check for typos and color and things like that. But uh but yeah, that should be out in uh, first week of November because I'm getting it printed in Canada. So it's a pretty quick, 
turnaround. Great. Well, congratulations on that. And um, thank you so much for covering all the big topics with me today on Dirty Linen. Um, It's been really fantastic to have you on the show, Julie. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me on. This has been so much fun. I loved it. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.